Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are? Hi, this is Cliff Walker, and I recruit candidates for the Texas Democratic Party. After working in Texas Democratic politics for going on 10 years, including stints at the Texas HDCC in Battleground, Texas, I'm practically giddy after my team's recent spectacular historic victory. That's right, a first-place finish out of 38 teams at the Texas Tribune's first-ever trivia night. If you couldn't make it, I just dare you to come and try and take our crown next time. And now, here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you, Cliff. This is Emily Ramshaw here with the TribCast for the first week of September. I'm joined by reporter Edgar Walters. Hello. Reporter Kia Collier. Hello. And reporter Morgan Smith. Hello. I thought we were going to have an all-ladies TribCast, but uh, Edgar dropped in. Foiled again. Exactly. It was our uh, best effort. So, Morgan, why don't you kick us off by telling us a little bit about Ken Paxton, the state's attorney general. He's surrounded by lawyers all day at work, uh, but it seems like he's struggling to keep them around for his criminal defense. What is the latest on that? So last week in Fort Worth, uh, Ken Paxton had his first appearance in the uh, the securities fraud case against him. And the bombshell that was dropped that was very unexpected was that Joe Kendall, the um, very widely respected high power defense lawyer that he has hired only just about a couple weeks ago, announced that he was going to be stepping down. And then after some kind of a back and forth with the judge, it was confusing and it but then emerged that Paxton is currently without a lawyer in this case, um, but likely to hire one in the next few days. Uh, the reason that was given by Kendall was he kind of he didn't give a lot of details. He said that there were some ongoing issues, um, but in the court filing that he later provided to reporters, he was a little bit more specific and said that there were ongoing differences that made the continuation of the attorney-client relationship uh, untenable. So, so like, what kind of issues could make a relationship <clears throat> untenable? I mean, I know people have been speculating about this a lot, but yeah. is there a chance to have any evidence? Like, this lawyer was trying to get him to take a plea deal, and he refused, or is there? Yeah, you know? I mean, there are a variety. This is a very complicated case, not just like the legal arguments involved, but also all the political considerations that someone representing Paxton would have to take into account. And, you know, there could be a variety of reasons, disagreements over whether or not um, Paxton should maybe plead guilty to one of the lesser charges and then, you know, in exchange for um, a, a lesser sentence and step down. Um, or, you know, even just differences about how Paxton should conduct himself, you know, in the public eye as attorney general while this case is ongoing. And this is the second lawyer that Paxton has had since he was indicted in late July. Um, and so two lawyers have so left. So two lawyers have left. He's now on his third lawyer. Um, and, you know, this is also something that could be a tactic as well to kind of delay the case, um, though this is, that's something that was pointed out by the special prosecutors in court saying, you know, we're not objecting to this right now, but just so you know, like, we're very skeptical about this. Um, and the judge has, the judge said that, you know, 
Paxton has to get a lawyer within this this week. He did give him a deadline. And I would add that it's not just lawyers. Last night I read on Texas Monthly's Berka blog that uh, long time a reputable source. <laughs> uh, Paxton's longtime personal spokesman Anthony Holm had yes, also that's resigned. Right. Really? Yes. Yeah. Anthony oh. is no longer working for Paxton. Is, was there any explanation for why that was? Um, he he stepped down shortly after the actual indictment was handed down and and you know Anthony was very aggressive even wrote an op-ed in the Austin American Statesman on Paxton's behalf um, but there was kind of there was an indication that he was going to stay with him through the indictment and then move on but that is also very vague and, and you know and Anthony was with Paxton throughout the campaign and and all of that so another interesting development does that make it less likely that it's a stalling tactic not that there are two lawyers who have yeah, down. I mean, it's a little, it doesn't quite, and it's also. That doesn't fit for me. Yeah, yeah. and it's mm -hmm. not quite the best strategy also to oh, have. It seems your, embarrassing. Yeah, and, and really in your first hearing as appearing as a criminal defendant to have your lead attorney step down, it just, the optics of it are are hmm. not favorable. Well, and like speaking of optics, I mean, what was it? So he walked in there to the courtroom basically like by himself. I mean, don't you normally, you normally have an attorney at your side, right? Yes, it was a very strange, so um, Paxton walked in with his wife um, and he had security with him um, and it was a pretty small courtroom. Um, you know, not a ton of press there, but certainly well, you know, attended by the press, but he walked in, his wife sat down in the front row and then Paxton went and sat um, at the bench behind kind of the, the row in the actual um, courtroom area and um, was just sitting there by himself for maybe, you know, a little under 10 minutes before even the special prosecutors and his attorney came. And it was a very, I remember thinking at the time that it just felt a little strange because, I mean, you have kind of Rick Perry and Tony Busby who kind of were so buddy-buddy walking into the courtroom together. You know, Perry always had a lawyer around to kind of confer with, so he didn't just look awkward, like, just standing there by himself while he was waiting. Um, so, so, yeah, just some interesting things going on there. <laughs> I, I imagine this is a really awkward and embarrassing thing. You know, I think that the theory that it might be, um, you know, intentional, as much as the sort of special prosecutors are, are probably gleeful about it and hoping to keep talking about the fact that Paxton can't seem to keep a lawyer, you know, that's that's a really sort of embarrassing thing, especially for the state's top, you know, uh, to, the state's top lawyer. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. To this be, is the guy defending the state against, uh, yeah. Right, right. Um, well, just transitioning quickly, since we're on the topic of um, of representing the state, it was my impression that the state was was sort of hoping to stay out of Rick Perry's criminal indictment case. Uh, this is the one that involves him trying to force Travis County DA Rosemary Lemberg out of office over a, a, her drunken driving arrest. Um, but this week, Texas officially challenged an appeals court ruling last month that dismissed one of those charges, uh, one of those counts in Perry's abuse of power case. So. Why on earth is the state getting involved in, and do they have to? Um, I think that this is, I mean, I think this is at the request of the special prosecutors involved. And it's something that, you know, as the state, if they um, need to step in and kind of if there are legal arguments to be had, then that's something that that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it also just kind of prolongs this case, I think, even though um, I think oral argument, they waived the request for oral arguments, at least Perry's team did, um, in order to kind of move it along more quickly. But um, it is something, you know, that was kind of a minor victory, having one of those counts thrown out. But, you know, 
really this is something that need that on Perry's team needs to be resolved as quickly mm. as possible, and this is just going to continue drawing it out. Mm. The state is stepping in because the appeals court's ruling kind of must with a version of coercion, or is, is that my yeah? I think that there's, um, in, I believe that their challenge that the the. The, the question of what the law says is in question. And right. so, so the state sort the of has to. Yeah. 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 So it was since it's a, a state law, the wording of it that's in question, then, you know, that kind of broadens what what needs to happen, I guess, in terms of um, of the defense. Yeah. It looked like t- Perry's lawyer was like, look, we don't hold it against the state for having to step in here and, def- you know, and defend this existing state law, the penal code, basically the interpretation of the penal code. But also we think it's unconstitutional. <laughs> yeah. Which is, yeah. My thought was that it seemed really odd for an appeals court to make a ruling that, you know, um, kind of must with a, a pretty common kind of definition like coercion. Um, right. When does that happen? I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. You know, we've talked about optics. I think, again, you know, having it look like the state is weighing in on Perry's case, you know, optically is not good, which is why I think his attorneys quickly came out and said, you know, we understand that they're required to do this um, because otherwise, you you know, it's not like you want the state attorney general's office or state prosecutors (laughs) really like involved in Rick Perry's case. Yeah. So, um, all right, well, let's head to another courtroom, this one in the Texas Supreme Court, where this week justices heard oral arguments in the case that um, hundreds, I guess 600 school districts have lodged against the Texas legislature over 2011 uh, budget cuts to public ed. Um, Kia, tell us a little bit about the proceedings this week and what the justices heard. Yeah, um, so, you know, money, lack of money, sufficient money, kind of inequality, uh, issues like that came up, um, as they did in the trial court in 2012. Um, but uh, the state kind of right out the gate brought up an argument that created some buzz among school finance nerds and, and legal geeks um, that uh, the court shouldn't even like be involved, um, that it should be the legislature's uh, decision to fix school finance. Um, and that was, um, you know, created buzz because there's a lot of legal precedent, um, I guess, for um, for the courts intervening. Um, it's, you know, uh, the state's been uh, to the Supreme Court like more than half a dozen times uh, since. For like three decades, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> since and, and suddenly yeah. their argument is this is something that, the, yeah. you know, isn't even the court's domain. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, I think people thought that was odd, um, but that seems to be kind of the heart of the state's argument. Um, Paxton, uh, Attorney General Paxton, released a statement yesterday uh, supporting that Governor Abbott uh, filed an amicus brief uh, with the court, also kind of making that argument. Um, So we'll see if it holds up. That argument also, just more broadly speaking, seems to be sort of in vogue these days, right? I mean, it's certainly something that came up talking about big sort of national Supreme Court decisions like on Obamacare and gay marriage. It was always just sort of leave the courts out of this. Yeah, it's a jurisdictional question. I think it raises you know, political questions. Um, justices, you know, the kind of the conservative justices or some of them, they're all Republicans, but um, Don Willett and Phil Johnson both seemed kind of amenable to that argument. And uh, Justice Willett, um, toward the end, uh, you know, gave this speech saying, you know, we we this is a bad cycle. We're back in court, you know, every decade or whatever, um, and we need to get out of it. Um, 
get out of it how? Get out of it by the legislature fixing it or get out of it by the court? Yeah, by, I guess, dismissing the case and mm -hmm. letting the legislature um, do, so do whatever it needs to do. Would this mean that the legislature would, basically the legislature would be the one to determine what is a constitutional adequate amount of funding for school just like that would just be in the hands of the legislature it's not like there's any kind of review of that yeah I check or a balance <laughs> right. yeah. yeah and I would say as many justices were skeptical of that um, Justice uh, Lehrman from um, the Dallas Fort Worth area was um, I think kind of she seemed surprised to me because um, that was the first argument that the state um, Solicitor General Scott Keller got up and and that was the first thing the state said and um, she was like I thought we've struck down that argument before you know and other justices were kind of like you know yeah um, they had obviously knew that was coming but um yeah it was it was definitely it was interesting and I think you know shocked some people. I mean, the favorite argument that I heard was the one that, that I guess the Solicitor General made about, um, you know, money not being pixie dust, right? Like funding isn't this sort of like, you know, funding isn't this cure-all. Even if we have adequate funding, it doesn't mean that, you know, that we're going to see improvements, which seems to like go pretty counter to most <laughs> other arguments about the purpose of funding in the streams in the legislature. Yeah, that was definitely part of the state's argument. It, it was, um, I think, kind of second because they agree with um, a par another party in the lawsuit that's suing them called the Efficiency Interveners, which is a group of kind of school choice and, and business uh, interests and parents who are arguing that uh, the school system is so inefficient that it needs to be struck down as unconstitutional and restructured mm. by the legislature. So, yeah. well, um, well, obviously, this is not um, th this is not the first time that we've been in the courtroom over this particular case. What have different courts ruled so far up up until this point? Like, how did we even get to the Supreme Court in the first place? Uh, well, the, the last time it was, uh, it reached the Supreme Court was in 2005, I believe. And um, in that case, the state, uh, or sorry, excuse me, the Supreme Court uh, agreed with school districts that uh, the school finance system created a de facto statewide property tax, which is not allowed in Texas. Um, but they disagreed that funding was inadequate. Um, so uh, yeah, the last time this reached the Supreme Court, um, they uh, they said it was basically gave it back to the legislature. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Basically, and it was you know touched on structural issues more than um, it, you know is the state giving schools enough money? Mm -hmm. um, well, you had an interesting story you know ahead of this, basically analyzing the cuts from 2011 and looking at you know even though a lot of this funding has been restored in theory, you know the the problems from these cuts are lingering. Whether it's class size, whether it's you know the teacher pay, right? I mean. Talk me through what some of the findings of your analysis were. Yeah, um, there are. So this kind of stemmed out of a conversation with, you know, I was asking the Legislative Budget Board about, um, you know, where. So, so the legislature cut $5.4 billion from public education in 2011. They've added back about $5 billion, I think, mm -hmm. but they haven't added it back in the same way that they cut it. So I was trying to better understand um, that. So basically what that means is, um, a lot of school districts have been, you know, uh, taken back to 2011 levels, restored, um, but a lot of districts haven't. Um, they they just haven't seen funding from the state um, uh, increase um, at all. Or if they're back to 2011 levels, it's like barely barely there. Um, so I decided to 
uh, kind of look at the argument that the state, um, sorry, the school districts presented in uh, 2012 regarding class size waivers, um, teacher kind of staffing levels, um, and you know some other things. And what I found was that um, thousands of teachers, there are thousands of fewer teachers um, in, I guess, traditional public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, uh, student enrollment has grown by 220,000. Mm-hmm. So that in turn has affected class size waivers. Um, right. You know, classrooms are, yeah. classrooms are more overcrowded. Um, a lot of schools are still requesting those waivers um, from the state, asking them to be able to put more than 22 kids um, in an elementary school mm-hmm. classroom. Right. I mean, so so how does this any of this? I mean, obviously, Morgan, you used to cover this. How does this any of any of this jive with what, you know, legislators have said in, in sessions past? I mean, was there some indication in the last session that, you know, that they thought these problems were resolved? I mean, I think that you hear what you heard a lot in 2013 would be would be legislators talking about how painful 2011 was and how hard it was to make the decision to make those cuts but at the same time kind of patting themselves on the back for restoring a lot of that funding and you know while nobody i think went as far as to say that um you know everything was better there was a lot of talk just in that you know, we've come a long, you know, we've come a long way. We've worked really hard to get a lot of money back to school districts. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kia, I think you had a quote from Larry, uh, public uh, education, Senate education chairman, Larry Taylor in your story um, that was kind of, you know, indicative of, I think probably like leadership's prevailing view of, of what was, you know, the 2011 cuts mm-hmm. and where they are now. Yeah, definitely. And his, um, he kind of harped on that more than I think um, uh, the house public education chairman Jimmy Don Acock um, who tried to fix you know came out with this big school finance fix this session that wasn't successful um, but yeah you know um, I think you know people like Larry Taylor and, and others think uh, you know we're, we're getting back to normal and um, uh, you know we need to um, kind of let this play out in the real world before you know courts uh, yeah cast judgment. I'm curious, have lawmakers weighed in on the state's argument? I mean, would somebody like Senator Taylor say, um, yes, you know, this should be a legislative fix and and maybe we have already fixed it? It depends on the lawmaker. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, Acock said, uh, you know, that uh, he expected the Supreme Court to remand the case back to state district court, given what they've done, um, you know, all the money they've added back and policy changes they've made in 13 and 15 um, during the 13 and 15 sessions. Um, but uh, I mean, he, I don't think he's saying it should be thrown out, you know, whereas, uh, you know, others like Governor Abbott <laughs> in his amicus brief to the court, are, you know, is are suggesting um, this needs to be entirely dealt with by the legislature and, and not the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of get these broad statements from lawmakers saying like, oh, this shouldn't be decided by some judge in Austin. You know, you saw a lot of that when the trial court initially declared this system unconstitutional. But I'd have to imagine that if you're a legislator and you're kind of thinking politically, you don't necessarily want responsibility right. for <laughs> determining school funding levels because it's such a notoriously controversial issue and it gets people riled up who don't sometimes, you know, wouldn't necessarily be voters get really riled up when they feel like, 
you might be responsible for, you know, and, and this is a much more direct way to be responsible for um, funding. Yeah, so deep yeah. down, I, th I feel like they want the courts to make some decisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's a great point. And that's why, you know, the state's kind of primary argument is even more interesting because it's like, I'm sure the legislature yeah. is saying, no, we don't <laughs> want to no do this. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Uh, well, you mentioned Governor Abbott. Let's transition to a great story Edgar had this week that involved um, pouring over a whole bunch of Abbott's emails around health care and in particular hospital funding in Texas. Um, Edgar, there were two parts to the story that I want to address Sort of separately, but the, the first was a really interesting exchange that the governor was having at around one o'clock in the morning. Um, what did that particular exchange show? So, a press aide to Abbott, I believe, had forwarded the governor um, a an opinion piece published uh, online by the Houston Chronicle. It was authored by Ken Yanda, who is uh, the CEO of a nonprofit, I think Medicaid managed care health plan, health, yeah, insurer health right. insurance plan, which is though affiliated with the giant public hospital system in Houston known as Harris Health. And Yanda had written, um, well, a number. He made a number of points, but foremost was that uh, state leaders needed to expand Medicaid um, and do it with sort of a private option. But basically sort of targeting um, Abbott and other state leaders for not, you know, providing health insurance to more than a million uh, Texans who could get it under Obamacare. Abbott read the opinion piece and forwarded it to aides saying that he wanted to know more about Yanda's financials and... His um, company's financials. His, his company's right. financials, right. Uh, and he said... Uh, he had been told by informed sources that most of these entities were, quote, rolling in dough. Um, so that to me, you know, it's interesting because so at, what's at issue here is this $30 billion five-year pot of mostly federal money that goes to hospitals um, to, to Right, to pay for, you know, basically care for people who can't pay for it themselves. Right. And in Texas, a lot of those people are people who don't have insurance but might be covered under um, Medicaid expansion. Um, some of them aren't, you know, they're people like undocumented immigrants. But, um, yeah, so uh, it was an interesting look kind of showing um, the governor's skepticism about how much public hospitals, which are responsible for taking care of, you know, a lot of the poor and uninsured people in Texas were actually suffering. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Texas gets this big pot of money they, if they, from the federal government. They have traditionally gotten this big pot of money to cover these people who can't pay for their own health insurance, health care. And, you know, the big question mark here is now that Texas has decided not to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, you know, it, are the feds going to stop giving them that hospital money? You know, the heads could sort of the feds could sort of use this as leverage to say and they've threatened sort of that they might. Yeah, Which, they've definitely gently uh, or not made clear that um, that Texas refusal to expand Medicaid is going to be a consideration in how much money they've awarded. And if you look at Florida, which receives a very similar pot of money and which recently expired, um, the feds agreed to renew some of that money, but at a dramatically reduced rate for the next two years. And they said in that letter, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but we don't feel like we should be paying for expenses that would be, you know, covered, covered. by giving people yeah. health insurance. So 
Uh, do these emails, I mean, do they show, do they contrast with what Abbott has said publicly with about this issue? I mean, is it, or add more nuance? Like, how does, how does that kind of that brings Match us to with, point yeah. two in the yeah. emails, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. So there's really only one email, at least, that I received um, from the governor specifically. And I think it does show sort of a characteristic um, position for him, which is that, um, you know, he's skeptical of how much hospitals are really struggling, how much the government really needs to be spending um, on these businesses, you know, for the healthcare that they're providing. That said, in the email batch, there there's a number of exchanges between officials at the Health and Human Services Commission and members of Abbott's policy advisory staff that indicate, in fact, actually a lot of these hospitals are taking big financial losses by caring for the uninsured because, I mean, they call it charity care. They, you know, they under federal law, um, hospitals have to provide care to people who show up in their emergency room. Mm-hmm. Um, and Harris Health, for example, relies 20% of its revenue, at least in 2013, came from these government funding sources for uncompensated care. Didn't the emails indicate that uh, they were looking at negotiating a deal similar to Florida's or better or something like that? Yeah, it was interesting. So, um, so the policy advisor said two things that sort of, I wouldn't say they necessarily contradict public statements, but they are they struck certainly a different tone than what you might hear from Abbott publicly. And the first is that, well, actually, public hospitals are really, in fact, reliant on this. And without this funding, um, there's even a note that says, you know, some of these, at least private hospitals, may opt not to see more Medicaid patients or, you know, close their doors, at least to some populations. Um, the second interesting note is, contrary to Abbott's uh, well-worn position of constant um, you know, fighting, I guess, with the federal government, uh, they actually show that he is uh, eager to sit down with uh, uh, Secretary Burwell, Ob- the Obama administration's sort of chief health czar, and work out a deal um, similar to or better than Florida's, but it sounds right. like said they want to get the best possible deal. How can we get the best possible deal? You know, yeah, it's clear, you know, the sort of we don't negotiate with terrorists thing. Right. <laughs> like they are clearly negotiating or, or hoping to negotiate with the Obama administration. Right. And I think hoping is a, is a key word because I, I do think also those emails indicated a degree of like realism. You know, I think um, it's understood that the feds are very unlikely to actually get continue giving Texas all of this money without a Medicaid expansion. Right. Would the state have a good chance if they, you know, the feds withheld this and they sued? Is there any precedent, legal precedent, or rules or anything like that that allows the federal government to to kind of withhold things? It, it's an interesting yeah. legal question. I think a lot of people would say, you know, that kind of a lawsuit doesn't stand a chance. But again, looking to Florida, there's an example there. Governor Rick Scott in Florida sued the Obama administration over the exact same thing. Um, In the original U.S. Supreme Court decision that allowed states not to expand Medicaid, um, I believe it was in the majority opinion, they used an expression that the federal government can't, quote, hold a gun to the heads of states. Right, can't punish them for it. Yeah. Yeah, for not expanding Medicaid. And Rick Scott's position in Florida has been that's exactly what's happening here. This is the equivalent of a gun. Um, 
Abbott has supported that lawsuit. He put out a statement several months ago um, in support of that. The emails also say, you know, we're considering, you know, a potential litigation option, but um, Abbott's advisor did say, you know, we hope not to have to resort to that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're necessarily feeling optimistic that that would be an easy way to hold on to this money. Um, well, speaking of Abbott, in just the last couple of minutes here, he's come out swinging after a series of sort of sting or undercover videos that show Planned Parenthood officials talking about procuring fetal tissue um, for research purposes. What's this uh, aptly named LIFE uh, initiative he's proposing? Well, for one, it's the first acrostic I've ever seen in a press release from the governor's office. There's a trivia question. <laughs> yeah, right. Hang on I to that one. I can't guarantee it's the first, but it's the first I'd seen. Um, <laughs> it's, um, you know, it is a response to these videos. It's, it's um, an initiative. I don't think it necessarily is a prompt call to action. Uh, Abbott told other um, uh, news sources that he doesn't intend on calling a special session uh, to address these, but he, in the initiative, he, you know, has asked um, lawmakers to criminalize, quote, any sale or transaction of fetal tissue. Um, again, in these Planned Parenthood videos, the, the criticism lobbed by anti-abortion groups is that Planned Parenthood is selling uh, this fetal tissue. Donation of fetal tissue for research purposes is legal under federal law, but and and you can be reimbursed for sort of overhead costs. Cost, the cost like of expenses, right? Transportation, right? Transportation for some of these organs. Right, um, but the criticism has been that it's that rather than being reimbursed like that, that Planned Parenthood is allegedly um, profiting selling. off of it, or yeah, right, exactly. So this terminology, like no sale or transaction of fetal tissue, like does that mean they're trying uh, they're trying to avoid even this transact, you know, any transaction, any exchanging of resources in order to to donate them? Right. I think it's probably intentionally vague. Mm -hmm. um, you know, donation. I guess sort of pure as we understand it, donation would technically remain legal under this initiative um, as long as there was no sort of reimbursement whatsoever. Um, but again, I, I think Can they do that? I mean, if the, if the federal, if federal law, you know, protects this kind of activity, I think the question, you know, I mean, I guess the state, you know, makes more restrictive laws than the feds, but it seems like this rule would have the net effect of doing something the state would like to do, which is, you know, financially adding to the financial burden of, of these Planned Parenthood or these other clinics. Because if these clinics can't, you know, get any of their sort of expenses covered for donating these organs. Um, or this fetal tissue, then it sounds like they'd be in the red. Right. And Planned Parenthood, it's also important to know that Planned Parenthood in Texas has also said that their clinics aren't even actually engaging in in any fetal right. tissue. Although donation. one of the videos is is from Houston, isn't it? It is, is it from Houston, um, but Planned Parenthood says, you know, it was sort of theoretical chit-chat. It's not, it's actually not a practice that's happening um, at the Texas abortion clinics. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, there in, in the Life Initiative, there were a few other sort of calls to action. Um, Abbott said he wanted uh, to make so-called partial birth abortion a felony. Um, there's actually already a federal law that prohibits partial birth abortion, which is a political term. I think in the medical field, they refer to it as 
dilation and extraction. It's, a, it's you know, one specific procedure used to abort a fetus, I think, late term. Um, but so Abbott's call, I guess, would just make it a felony, just sort of one step up. Um, I mean, there's a long time till the next legislative session. Like, yeah, it yeah. seems like this is the preview of what we're yeah. going to do. Yeah, right. Right. And, and, you know, there have been sort of endless, it's, it seems, um, investigations into Planned Parenthood at the state level after these videos, including um, a hearing, you know, convened by the Senate Health and Human Services Committee. Um, and there, Republican lawmakers indicated that they were going to look at, you know, criminalizing fetal tissue donation next session. I think this is something to be aware of for 2017. Great. Well, if there's anything you'd like us to be aware of for 2017, uh, you can email us at tribcast at texastribune.org. We'd also love to invite you to the fifth annual Texas Tribune Festival. If you're not already signed up, what are you waiting for? October 16th through 18th on the UT Austin campus. Registrations at texastribune.org slash festival. Uh, we'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Morgan, Kia, Edgar, and our producer, Todd, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. 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 Texas talking.